0: This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. We're going to speak about living like Jesus. What if someone were to come up to you and ask the question how do I live like Jesus? What kind of answer would you give to them? I have this thing that I say to people a lot of times when I'm saying goodbye I'll say now remember be good and do good. And that's a good summary of what it means to live like Jesus. What it would look like to live like Jesus. Be good and do good. Because after all it is said of Jesus in the scriptures that he went about doing good. So that's one thing. And then the other one is just being good. He was, he was righteous. He was without sin. So be good and do good. But that's the framework. We'll spend the rest of our lives filling in the blanks and doing the specifics of what it looks like and what it means to live like Jesus. So that's where we're exploring today. That's where we're going with all this. And so um, the first thing that I want to talk about is to love like Jesus. Now, God is love. Jesus was the God-man. So that, I mean, this is not rocket science here, is it? This is very simple, down-to-earth gospel. Love like Jesus. How did Jesus love? For one thing, his love was radically Different. Radically different. Those two words. A radical kind of love and a love that is different from any other kind of love in the world. The Bible speaks of an unconditional love. The word the Greek word for love is as I'm sure most of you know, the word agape, which means you love without condition. You love no matter what. And so that's the kind of love that Jesus expressed, and that's the kind of love that He that He lived. It's not just about being good in terms of being religious and doing good religious stuff and and religious practices. They can be very important and they can be life-giving, but they can also just suck the life right out of you. And even 700 year or 600 years before Jesus, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And in the very first chapter, he's speaking for God because the prophets always said, Thus saith the Lord. This is what God is saying through me, in other words. And so Isaiah, in the very first chapter, if you want to look it all up later in verses 11 through 15, I'm not going to read that, but I'm just going to summarize some of the things that Jesus said religion does not do, or that Isaiah said that religion does not do. In fact, he is very indicting in what he says to the people of Israel, to God's people. He said, I've had enough, I've had enough of your sacrifices, which mean nothing. I've had enough of your worship, which is just a lot of motion going on. It's not real. It is just going through the motions of worship. I've had enough, he said, of all the things you're doing, the offerings you bring, even the offerings you bring are despicable to me, detestable to me. You're just going through a lot of motion. You're, you're lifting up this incense and it doesn't even reach me. And all of your festivals, your new moon festivals and all the festivals they celebrated were an abomination to God, according to Isaiah. And my favorite one is the message one. it's toward the end of that little passage. And he talks about their prayer performance, their prayer performance. So religion is not what we're talking about. The religious people are the ones who killed Jesus. So religion is not the answer. Love doesn't look like religion. Love like Jesus. What does that mean? In John chapter 14, Jesus sums it up for us, I think. And he's speaking to his disciples in a very intimate setting. And he says, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And he even called that a new commandment. It was so profound. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, we could easily say, I can love my neighbor. I can love the person sitting next to me this morning. It's probably could be a family member or a close friend. We can love one another. But Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And that's very profound. And that's very radically different. Because what did Jesus do? How did he love us? He died for us. And he was willing to do that. I want to tell you a story that comes from a book by a man named Bob Goff. He's an attorney, and he wrote, he's written this great book several years ago, 2012 or 13. It's called Love Does. Anybody read that book? Familiar with it? A few of you have. And in this book, he tells a story. He tells a story about meeting a young man named Ryan. And so he and his wife live on the coast. And they have apparently a really nice view of the water and the the coastline. And he says that there's a little path, a little green path, grassy path, that comes along in front of his house. And he and his wife enjoy sitting on the porch on afternoons and watching people as they pass by. Many of them are couples and they're holding hands. And one day this young man comes walking and he waves he waves very enthusiastically, and so they wave back. And then he just stands there and waves again, and he keeps waving on and on, and they are waving back, and he's waving. And so Bob thinks, well, maybe he wants to talk about something. Maybe he's he's in uh, trouble. And so he walks down and begins to talk to to uh, to this young man who introduces himself as Ryan, and he says, "My name is Ryan, and I'm in love. I have a girlfriend." And so Bob says, well, congratulations. Well, I just was wanted to ask you something. Would it be okay if I brought my uh, girlfriend to your backyard and proposed to her? It's such a beautiful setting, a beautiful view. And Bob said, well, sure, that sounds like a great idea. And so he went running off and a few days later he, he comes back and he starts waving again. And Bob walks down there again. And this time he has another request. He said, okay, is it okay if we have a dinner in your backyard? And so Bob by now is caught up in the young man's enthusiasm. In fact, he's already thinking about what an audacious love, which means he has the audacity to ask me these things. And so he said, "Uh, can I have a dinner in your backyard? Well, sure. What would you like for me to make for you? And so by then, he's running away and doesn't even hear the question. He's so excited and so enthusiastic, an enthusiasm which, which is catching to Bob. And so he gets caught up in it, and a few days later, as you might imagine, he comes walking down the path again. And Bob goes down once again as he's waving wildly to him. And this time he says, okay, would it be all right if I had 20 of my friends to serve this dinner? And by now, Bob is caught up in all this, and he says, sounds like a great idea. Why don't we do that? Well, a few more days go by. In fact, it's more days than, than, he, uh, than he's had between visits before, and he gets a little worried. Maybe, maybe something has happened. Well, on cue, he comes again, and this time, his request is to have speakers in the backyard. And he said, I think it'd be wonderful after dinner, with my f- uh, 20 closest friends serving if we had some music and I could dance with my girlfriend. And, and after the dance, I'll ask her the question. Well, sure, I don't see why not, he said. I can arrange that. And so some more time goes by, and here comes Ryan again. And he's running this time. In fact, he doesn't even stop down at the path. He runs right up to Bob's house, and, and he's out of breath, and he says, do you have a boat and he said well yes i do have a boat by now bob is thinking okay this is getting a little bit out of hand and he said may i borrow it because i'd just like to take her out on the water and propose to her out there and bob said sure why not so bob begins to hatch an idea of his own he calls the coast guard and he makes some arrangements and so the night comes and everything goes as planned There is a beautiful setting, a beautiful moon. The stars are in the sky as if they're just, they're out looking at this audacious, enthusiastic, and even courageous love that is happening. And so they have the dinner, the 20 are serving, the dance happens, and they go down to the boat and they get in the boat. And Bob drives them out to the predetermined place on the water. But what he doesn't know, what Ryan doesn't know, is the plan that Bob has. He's called the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard captain gets all caught up in the excitement of everything. And so, and Ryan has 50 of his friends on the shore with candles. And they're saying, they're spelling out, will you marry me? So, at just the right time, He proposes to his girlfriend, and she says, yes. And Bob gives the cue to the Coast Guard boat, which is crept up, unnoticed, and they begin to shoot off their water cannons. (laughs) And it's a spectacular event. And Bob tells this, this story, and he says, this is the kind of audacious love God has for us. And we see this played out in the life of Jesus, This is how Jesus loves. This is how Jesus loved the blind beggar who was sitting by the wayside. This is how Jesus loved the woman caught in adultery. This is how Jesus loved the woman at the well in Samaria who had had five husbands and was living with a man who was not her husband. This is how Jesus loves. This is how Jesus loved the man possessed with demons in the the region of Gadarene. And it says that he was a demoniac. He wasn't just someone who occasionally was possessed with demons. It had so overwhelmed his life that this was his identity now. He is simply identified as a demoniac. And Jesus loved him. And Jesus loved all of those who were hungry and all of those who were sick and dying and even dead. This is how Jesus loves. In another place, Jesus said... They will know if you love one another or if you, they will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. That's defining about the kind of love that Jesus has. And then I also want to tell you that living like Jesus means sacrificing like Jesus. Sacrifice like Jesus. We know that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice so that our life could be forever That the penalty would be paid for our sin. That's the big sacrifice. But Jesus says to us, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. What comes next? Daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Taking up one's cross is kind of a symbol for sacrifice and even suffering sometimes. What does it look like? that we sacrifice like Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's think about that word ransom for a moment. You know, in movies, ransom is what the kidnappers ask the family to pay for the one who has been kidnapped so that that person can be set free and of course they always say whatever you do don't call the police that will be tragic if you call the police well almost invariably they call the police right or someone tips off the police or the police find out in hawaii 50 they always find out somehow because they have all these listening devices right and they're able to, to listen to the voice of someone 50 miles away. It's incredible. But anyway, it, it's a ransom. a ransom is payment, someone paying the price to release someone from bondage or captivity. A perfect thing for Jesus to say, because he would give his life as a ransom, that is, to pay the price for our sin, so that we might have life and all of its abundance which includes life everlasting. So that's what Jesus says that it's like to sacrifice like him, to step in and rescue someone who is in bondage. I we'll want tell you a story about a young man we have come to know in Roatan, Honduras. His nickname is Blanquito. He's 22 years old. We have known him for seven or eight years now. He's, he's one of the, the people, one of the young men who started hanging out with us when they were 13, 14 years old. We called them the street boys because they lived practically on the street. They had a, a, a little shack to sleep in at night, but they just lived on the street. And when we were in town, they would all come to where we were staying. And we would give them things to do. We would feed them. And so Blanquito is one of those boys who is now a young man. Unfortunately, life has not been very good for Blanquito. He doesn't have a job. He's had a couple of jobs, but he not only has trouble getting a job, he has trouble keeping a job. Some of it is his fault, but it's part of the economy and part of the way things work down there. A business, for example, is allowed to hire someone for up to 90 days and pay them a minimum wage or just a... A very small wage. I don't think there is a minimum by law. But then after 90 days, if they're still employed, they have to start paying them benefits. And so they will work, how many days would you guess? 89, right? And then they're let go. And this has happened to Blanquito a couple of times. And so he's very discouraged, very disillusioned. And we would hear stories, I mean, when he was with us, he would just be awesome. He would work harder than any of us. He would do everything we asked him to do, and even more. We would get back to our place of lodging at night and have to unload a bunch of stuff, and he would be the first one out of the truck. And he would have half of it unloaded before the rest of us could even get out. And that's how hard he works. He would help in the kitchen. He would do anything. And so he's a very hard worker, and we've come to know and love him. But he doesn't fit in in his culture. He doesn't fit in with the other street boys, even he's ostracized he's he's kind of shunned or shut out because of his unique personality that's the best way I know to describe it and so we hear that when he's not with us and when we're not there which is 48 weeks out of the year he doesn't do well we hear about him drinking smoking pot and just in general getting into trouble and not living for Jesus. When he's with us, he, he's, he's very sincere, I think, in saying, listen, I want to be living for Jesus like you guys are. But it's so hard here when you're not here. I don't have any support, any encouragement. I don't have anyone to walk along beside me. A few weeks ago, we had a team in Roatan. I wasn't able to go. And so, very mature Christians, some of them as young as 20 years old, but a whole group Sixteen of them the first week, eight who were the carryovers from the second week. And so Blanquito was there with them every single day, working as hard as he could. But toward the end of the week on Friday, when they were to leave on Saturday, he posted a photo on Facebook, And uh, and I saw it on that Friday afternoon, and it was a picture of Blanquito sitting by himself on the beach. They had had a half a day at the beach on the last day. And so he was sitting there, and he's all alone, and he's surrounded by sand. And he has on a cap. You can barely see his face, but you can see his big smile. And the first thing I thought about was a, an emotion of gladness. And I thought, how great that Blanquito seems so happy, that he seemed so full of joy. And I knew it was because the team had been there not just one week this time, but two weeks But I also quickly moved to the emotion of sadness because I knew that the team was leaving early the next day and Blanquito would be sad and he would probably go back to his old ways. Well, on that Friday night, Blanquito broke down to a couple of our team members and just poured out his heart. He was weeping and he was saying, I just need someone to pray for me. I need someone to encourage me. And they all pledged, of course, that they would, which they had also already been doing to some degree. And Blanquito said, please pray that God will send someone to help me. So two of the team members called me that evening and told me the story. And they were broken themselves. They were in tears because they had such compassion for this young man. And so that was Friday night, and on Saturday night, the team was en route back home. They were in a, I knew they were in the airport in Atlanta, and I was sitting there just kind of mindlessly watching television, and an idea came to my mind. What if we helped Blanquito to find a job with someone that we know, who can be his mentor, who can be his discipler? And I thought immediately of this pastor friend of mine there. His name is Pastor Javier Sanchez. And I mentioned his name because I'd like for you to pray for him. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But Pastor Javier is also an electrician. That's his trade. He pastors on the weekends or is at the church on Sundays and does what he can during the week as a pastor. But I also know him to be a quiet, gentle, kind and thoughtful man. And I thought, "What, what a perfect companion. He could be the father figure. That Blanquito never had in his life. He doesn't even know who his father is, has never seen him. Raised by his mother who raised five other brothers. And so, to make the long story short, I could tell you of all the things that happened during the week to bring this along. This morning, when I woke up, there was a message, a Facebook message from Blanquito. And all during the week, we've been trying to hook him up with Pastor Javier. And Blanquito has a phone, but he doesn't always have the money to put minutes on it. He doesn't always have access to Wi-Fi. So I was trying to, to communicate with him through Facebook Messenger, through uh, WhatsApp, through even a, a phone call, you know, just a normal phone call. And finally he got the message. And I said, Blanquito, Pastor Javier has been trying to call you. And this morning he said, I've talked to Pastor Javier, and I'm going to start work on Monday morning. Now, I'd like for you to pray for Blanquito, but I'd also like for you to pray for Pastor Javier to be someone who can disciple him, invite him to his church, get him involved in the church. Blanquito is is great with children. It's one of the things that he does so well with our teams He's able to organize the children and line them up to receive shoes or or flip-flops or or shirts or whatever we're handing out. And so I want you to pray, if you would, for them. But you see, here's what I'm here's the point I want to make about sacrifice. It's easy to go on a one or two-week mission trip. It's easy to go and, and do what I call just dump a blessing on everybody, feel good post some pictures on Facebook so everybody else can see how you are doing so good in the world, and then come back home and, and maybe think about them for a few weeks, maybe think about the Blanchitos and and all the other people that they meet, then not think about it again until the next year, if ever. And so it gets messy, this whole idea of sacrifice, of living like Jesus and sacrificing like Jesus. It gets very messy because God has called us not to be friends with someone for a short period of time, not to disciple for one or two weeks, but also to stay involved in a person's life. And I've told our team, don't be surprised if he disappoints us. If Blanquito goes astray again, we'll just love him back and we'll stay in touch. And we're going to stay in touch with Pastor Javier. That's what it's like to sacrifice like Jesus, to stay involved with the Blanquitos of this world, with those who are hurting, with those who are living in dark places, as all those street boys were and some still are. And that's how we sacrifice, like Jesus. And the third one is to forgive like Jesus, to forgive like Jesus. We know that Jesus on the cross said, as he looked at his accusers and his crucifiers, you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, I don't know about you, but I have trouble forgiving so quickly and so instantly and so completely. And here were people who were, who were killing the Son of God, and he was saying, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. My reaction is, oh yeah, they knew what they were doing. And when someone harms me or does something to me, it's hard for me to say they didn't know what they're doing because I know they know what they were doing. But Jesus was talking about their ignorance of the true message and the meaning of God. You see, they were living by law. They were living by a set of rules. And so Jesus broke their rules. They didn't know what they were doing in that sense that they didn't understand God. They didn't understand the Heavenly Father. They didn't understand the the one who spoke about leaving the 99 sheep and going in search of the one until he found him. They didn't know the story of the Good Samaritan until Jesus came along and the the tremendous implications of such a story. To love like Jesus and to forgive like Jesus and to sacrifice like Jesus. Jesus. When I was a pastor, and every church has one or two people like this, there was a man about my same age, and it started early on in my ministry. He became what pastors like to refer to as their perennial adversaries. You know, the, the person who is always causing trouble about something. I'm sure there's not one here or any here, but some churches do have them. And so this guy had all kinds of reasons why he didn't like me. And I would hear from other people. And some years later, I was able to confront him about that because he was talking about me in the community. He was saying things derogatory about me, not fact, but opinion. And probably may have been some truth. I don't even know what all he was saying, but he just did not like me. And one night this week, Monday or Tuesday, I was laying in bed reading and I must have read something about forgiveness. And I thought about this man. And I thought, I'm not sure I have ever really forgiven him. He never said to me that he forgives me or he never apologized to me or anything. But that doesn't, that's not a prerequisite for forgiveness, right? But I felt like I still had some hostility toward him. Because every time I think about him, I have hostility toward him. And so... So I lay there, and I started thinking about a lot of things. And, you know, we talk about random acts of kindness. You know, you just go out and do something for somebody randomly without thinking about it, without any uh, thought of anything in return. And I thought, what can I do as a random act of kindness for this man? And everything I would think about, I would think, well, that sounds a lot like trying to kill him with kindness. So that's the wrong motive. But I want to tell you, I'm still working on that. I'm still working on that. Which underscores the fact that forgiveness is not easy. To be able to forgive like Jesus is something most of us can only dream about. We cannot imagine what it would look like in our life to forgive like Jesus. And so it's not easy. It's not easy at all. In the book of Acts, chapter 13... There's a story of the early church and they're just beginning to embark on their mission which would revolutionize the world. In fact, Luke wrote in the book of Acts that they turned the world upside down, turned it upside down. So they were, this was the very embryonic stage of, of this whole revolution of what it means to live for God. And so it says that they set aside some men. They gathered together, had prayer And then they set aside some men, and they chose Paul and Barnabas. He was still called Saul at that moment, at that time. Later his name would become Paul the Apostle. But it says in verse 13 that they set aside, or verse 3 rather, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Sent them off. Love does sacrifice does forgiveness does they were sent off they were sent out they weren't just a a group of men who after that met together for prayer and fasting themselves but they went into all the world to share the gospel to love like Jesus to sacrifice like Jesus to live like Jesus